0: Would you turn with me? I encourage you to turn in the back of your bulletin for the notes and then turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the end of James chapter 4 as we continue on this series. And James, I want to say a few things as I begin. I love being able to preach before this congregation with you. You guys are such a joy to teach the Word of God to and to preach Word of God. I thank God. I just can't believe God has given me this privilege. And I praise God for it, and I pray for it. And I praise God that you pray for the ministry of the Word week in and week out. And if you don't, please do that. I also want to say I'm so thankful for this book. If you don't have a Bible, we'd invite you to take one in one of the pews, one of the chairs in front of you, And you could turn to page 1013, if it's in the thick black Bible, or there's one that's a little thinner, and that's around page 952. We'd love for you to keep that Bible if you don't have it. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17 in just a minute. God, help me now. Thank you for Jim's prayer for our church and for right now. I say amen and ask that you would open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. I've heard a lot of people over the last several months as we've gone through the book of James say to me something like this, James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I want to say to them, why? Do you like getting spiritually punched in the face? And I mean spiritually, not literally. James takes us into the ring of our soul and goes after all types of sin and hypocrisy, evil desires and temptation, unbridled tongues, our words, and fake Christianity and divisive, dividing, living towards one another and fights and quarrels and favoritism and idolatry and prayerlessness and selfishness? James doesn't pull punches, but by God's grace, God's word, including James, hits the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We are called to live a life that takes sin seriously and even seeks to kill it, kill sin on our own lives, going after the very root of that sin that is displeasing to God in my heart and in my life. Sin is our greatest problem. It is the, great, it is the most hateful thing in the world. And it will destroy us if we ignore it and we don't look for the proper antidote to it, Now, speaking of sin, I wonder if you were to think about this question this morning. Is there a great sin that is the root of many other sins? And I wonder what you would say. What is the great sin that is maybe a root and foundation of all other sins? Well, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, It is pride. Pride is a root sin that leads to many other sins in our lives. But I want to share with you another. Jerry Bridges in his brutal and beautiful book, Respectable Sins, I recommend it to you, where he confronts sins like anxiety and frustration and pride and unthankfulness and selfishness and lack of self-control and anger and impatience. He argues for a sin that is the root of so many others, the sin of ungodliness. This is different than wickedness. Wickedness is outright bad behavior towards someone that is just violation and cruel and evil. Ungodliness is different. You might be a very moral man or woman with little unapproved outward actions or words. In fact, you might be very nice. You may attend church on Sundays and do good outward things and be a member of a church. And you may actually volunteer and care for one another in certain ways and still be ungodly. Ungodliness may be defined according to Bridges, as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of His glory, and your dependence on Him. I wonder where you are. As Bridges says, no Christian is totally godly, and to that extent, there's still have some degrees of ungodliness. The question we should honestly and humbly ask each of us in this room today is how ungodly am I? How much of my life do I live without any regard to God? How much of my daily activities do I go through without reference to God in my thinking, and my decisions? Total godliness and utter ungodliness are the exact opposite sides ends of a continuum. All of us are somewhere in between these two extremes. The only person who ever lived a totally godly life was Jesus. And probably and no other believer in this life will live completely godly. But there are but where are we on this spectrum? As you think about your own life, remember that we are not talking about righteousness or wicked behavior. We're talking about living as though God is relevant or irre- irrelevant in your life. And that leads us to the text we're going to look at very well. Look at James chapter 4 verse 13, where James reveals to us a way of thinking and talking that is not consistent with godliness and instead is ungodly. Look at verse 13. James writes, Come now, you who say, or, hey, hear this. today or to- You who say this, this is what they say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and will spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and do this or that. As it is, You boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let's look at this passage in three parts this morning. Number one, the presence of what I'm going to call presumption. The presence of presumption. He says, come now, you who say, verse 13, come now, you who say, this is what you say, Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a place, and we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to trade, and we're going to make a profit. And I'm going to say, here we see, James has a problem with what they're doing and saying in verse 13, and that is not that they're making plans, they're making plans, There are other places in the Bible where Jesus says, you are a wise person, counts the cost. They make preparation. They make plans before they do something. He is not criticizing them that are making plans to do something. And he is not criticizing someone for making a profit. This is not an anti-capitalism passage. But what he is bringing out is what we're going to see is presumption. It's an idea, presumption is an idea that is taken to be true. I, I just take that truth to be true, like I'm going to have tomorrow to make a profit. I'm going to actually be able to determine whether I'll go to that town. I'm presuming that this idea is too true often, And often used as a basis for other ideas, although it is not certain. Presumption is saying, I am going to do something, when in reality, it is not a certain reality. James exposes the presumption of tomorrow in their lives. He's exposing the presumption of tomorrow with an attitude of self-confident assurance, something that we should not presume on or take for granted. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We will go and spend a year there. And we will trade. And as a result, we will make a profit it's planning as though we are the decisive factor and that we are self determining it's it's this he is coming now to the saying there is a type of thinking and then a type of talking you who say that does not take god into account it is this thinking without god as central Upon our thoughts. It's a practical atheism. I I do not think that the majority, I know that the majority, if not almost everyone in this room, unless you were pulled in this morning and, and are a visitor, not one of you would say you're an atheist, that you say, I do not believe that God exists at all. But there is something that we could call practical atheism. Practical atheism. Uh, as one man described it, is holding an intellectual commitment to the belief in God, but thinking, feeling, behaving as if there is no God. And we could say far too often in our lives we can do this And go about our days. We come to Sunday and we remember oh, yes, we're a Christian. We believe certain things about the Trinity. We think it's about Jesus and about the cross and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I need all these things, but then once church is out, we go and we can make plans. We can operate our lives without any regard for though God is watching and God is in control. And we are going to give an account to God and that He is real. And James shows us that and points us to say, is, the, is there a presence of presumption in your life? Practical atheism. Maybe I heard it this way, I read this week. Atheists don't pray because they don't believe in God. Practical atheists, and they might say they're Christians believe in God, but often have a weak and non-existent prayer life. I mean, if, if we really believe there's a God in the universe that is personally related to us and has made us adopted sons and daughters and has given us this thing called prayer and he tells us to ask, seek, and knock and he says to do it persistently and then he promises to care for our needs and he wants us to ask for them and he wants us to ask help for others, then what do we live like we believe him and believe that prayer is a reality? I would argue that Far too often we don't because our prayer commitments, our way of living would be different and it would be a priority. Atheists don't read, study, or meditate on Scripture because they believe the Bible is a fictitious book, a hoax, and a sham. Practical atheists believe the Bible is the Word of God but rarely read and study it. They don't act like it's real. They don't act like this book will keep me from sin. This book will revive my soul. This book will teach me to know personally. This will bring me into personal relationship in a deeper relationship with my creator of whom I am meant to live for and will live in eternity with. Atheists boast they don't need God and get along every day without God in their lives. Practical atheists occasionally acknowledge God. On Sundays, they attend church, sometimes even, but many other things take priority. But they see very little need of Him for the rest of their week unless they are in crisis. Verse 13, we see the presence of presumption, a practical atheism. We see the foolishness of this in the next verses, but I want to ask you, high school seniors... Eighth graders, parents, seniors, looking, those looking for into retirement just in a few years, are we living and planning in a presumptuous way as though we are the final determining factor? And James is going to want us to, all of us, To hear and humble ourselves and realize there is a sinful and a wrong way of thinking and talking. And he is going to challenge us on this sin of presumption. Let's look secondly at the foolishness of this presumption. He doesn't just leave us with, hey, there's a problem here. He tells us what that problem is. In verses 14 and 15, I want you to see the folly of presumption. He says this. Here he now moves to the critique of it. What's wrong with 13? Here he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In this passage we see folly, the folly of this presumption of I am self-determining. And I love what Moiter says in his commentary on James, and I want to bring that to you. He says there are three things that should humble us and correct us and guide us as Christians on this path. And I find them both humbling, helpful, and... And cause my heart to cling to God in his grace in an even greater way. And they should truly humble each of us. The humility that we need and that we saw last week when he says he gives grace to the humble. They think and they they think and they talk a certain way because their hearts are humbled before God. And we see them, these three points, in the three verbs that we get in these two verses. So First of all, these verses, James is saying, number one, you're ignorant about your future. You're ignorant. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I'll tell you what, I have some things planned tomorrow. I have some meetings planned tomorrow, this week. At the end of the week, I have a doctor's appointment. I have other things. I've, I've made these plans but I don't know truly what tomorrow will bring. Everything might change in an instant on my way home this afternoon, or it may change for you this afternoon. And he's gonna say, you are ignorant. You do not know. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You might make good guesses, and we might be right but we might not be. Proverbs 27.1, the Proverbs, Solomon said, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring about. And that what he means is doesn't say, don't make plans, don't think that this is going to happen tomorrow, but remember, you don't know something could change. You need to be soberly minded and not presumptuous presumptuous. We would be wise to let Jesus's words of a parable impact our thinking. And so listen to me, Luke 12. In fact, I invite you to turn with me. Look to Luke chapter 12, verse 16. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, Jesus gives a parable, one to illustrate about greed in in our lives. And, And I think in a secondary way, we see something that illustrates this passage in James. He told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced produced plentiful. And this rich man thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I will. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing all those things. But he says, I will do these things. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you many years. And then they can retire. I'm going to retire. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And the the point was, Not yours. I'm taking you. Your time is done so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable warns of greed and, and short-minded thinking rather than, than thinking about eternal realities and the presumptuous, presumption that tomorrow is a given in your life. You who are the, hung, the healthiest in this room, you have no promise that you're going to be healthy And alive tomorrow. You, all of you, will die unless the Lord returns first. Mortality rate is 100% in this room. And tomorrow is not a given. I wonder if we could be humbled and say, you know, I'm going to make plans, but ultimately I don't know. He's going to give an antidote. He's going to say what we should say. He's going to say, you should say, Lord willing, and really believe it. This reminds me of a story by Charles Simeon. I've mentioned this man before. He was a pastor in 19th century England. He served the Lord diligently. And, he was a, uh, and, and around age 47, around my age, he was hit with an illness that limited his strength and ability. He continued pastoring, but it was brutal and it was hard and he just barely made it week after week for 13 years. He would preach a sermon and he would say, describe it. He's like, I feel more dead than alive after this sermon. He was; They couldn't explain it, what was going on. And a biography, biographer writes of this man that in around 1819, that sets the time he was living, he, he was on a... a A last visit to Scotland as a preacher, and as he crossed the border, he says he he said it was almost as perceptibly, he was as perceptibly revived of strength as when he had arrived, as that the woman who was touched by or to touch Jesus and immediately felt healing. It was as though he felt that immediately, as though he had touched Jesus' garment. And his interpretation of of God's care and providence in this begins with the beginning of his weakness when he started to fall apart his health. Up until then, he had promised himself that he would give a very active life until he was 60. And then at age 60, he was going to ride into the sunset and relax and rest for the rest of his time but now he seemed to hear his master saying to him i laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor but that you but that now you have arrived at the very period in which you had promised yourself that satisfaction and have determined instead to spend your strength for me the last hours of your life i have doubled now and trebled and quadrupled your strength that you may execute your desire on the more on a more extended plan. And so, at age 60 years of age, when he thought he was going to retire, his strength came back to him and he knew my life needs to be spent for God. I cannot presume and make plans. I do not know God's ways. He recommitted himself to the ministry. And for the next 17 years, he served faithfully until two months before he died. James says, it is foolish to act as though we know. We're ignorant. We are wise to know. I don't know fully. I can make plans. I can prepare. And I should do both of those. But I have a humble, non-presumptive attitude about my plans in life. And that leads us to the next reason. Number two, he asks this, and he says, you are frail, you are frail, remember that. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. He says, what is your life? It's mist, it's vapor, it is It is like smoke that just goes up and is gone very quickly. It is is a mist that just you feel it for a second and you can't capture it and hang on to it again. It is very brief. That is your life. It is much easier to feel at age 46 the mist-like nature of my life than at 36. And I'm sure you who are at 66 or 86 will nod your head and say, yes, and you don't even know, Pastor. And young people and old people and anywhere in between, God wants us to be humbled and live our lives with a perspective, my life is a mist and, I re- and it is frail and it is short and I am... I am wise to keep that in mind. Your life is a breath. The psalmist says in Psalm 39, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing as before you. Surely all of mankind stands as a mere breath. That's where we are. I mean, we're, we're a breath and then we're gone. Or as Moses in the Psalm 90 says, All our days will pass away. He says the years of our life, he says, in the average is 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Our lives are breath, and they are his breath. And we will someday give an account to a holy and just judge for what we did with our words and what we did with our actions and what we did with Jesus Christ, who has been offered to you and is offered to you. And if you have rejected Christ, oh, you will for eternity grieve and lament the days in which you heard Jesus over and over again and you did not choose to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ who offered to you salvation on His terms, but offering it free and clear if you will but turn away from your sins and accept that He is the only way and follow Him with all your heart. There will come a day in which we will face a judge. There will come a day in which we will see that often our time wasted on social media our time wasted on sports, our time wasted on leisures, all of which can be a gift from God and we should enjoy Him to the, them to the glory of God, often crowd out meaningful, loving engagement in the lives of others. And he says to us, your life is a vapor. It is a mist. You're here and then it vanishes. So why are, you, why are you living in such a presumptuous way that you have tomorrow? Don't you realize your life is frail? I, I'm thankful for the frail people in this room who know they're frail and they're living in absolute dependence on the Lord. And that will be the mark of a mature Christian that grows in humility. And as we grow in humility, we grow up in joyful praise. The humble and the joyful are not at odds. They're the same thing, same person as they know I am weak. I am frail, but he is strong. He is my strength. You might be sitting here and going, but I... You don't know, Pastor Daniel. Yes, I don't, but Jesus knows. He knows even the mental illnesses you face, the different personality challenges you have, the frailness of your emotion, emotional makeup and personality or the experiences of your past that has made it so difficult. He knows that frailness. And He calls us to humble ourselves before Him. James James says, oh, it is it is foolish to presume because you're ignorant, you're frail. But but those two things are knowing those two things are the beginning of the antidote of overcoming presumptuous. We say, yeah, I don't know, and I'm frail. I'd better wisen up and humble up and live as God has revealed my reality and his reality as it pertains to the remainder moment's breaths of my life. Which leads to the third verb or the third thing about the folly of this presumption. And he says, you are dependent. Instead, he says, instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I like how some of you senior saints, will say to you, I'll be talking on to your, you on the phone, and I'll say, Are you, am I going to see you on Wednesday? And, and Dorothy will say, God willing. <laughs> and we should all have that mindset. And what he says here, he says, instead of saying, I will do these things, we say, if the Lord wills, we will go into such and such a town. And remain there for a year. If the Lord wills, we will make a profit. And if the Lord wills, we will return. If the Lord wills, we'll graduate from high school and go to this college. If the Lord wills, we'll take this job and make a profit and have a career. If the Lord wills, we'll continue on in eighth grade or in second grade. If the Lord wills, we'll retire. If the Lord wills, we will go to Florida. If the Lord wills, we will do this up north. And if the the Lord doesn't will, it's not happening. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All humans are absolutely dependent on God and his will. Every atheist is absolutely dependent on God for everything. They just don't recognize it. And practical atheists don't recognize it. Moment after moment in their lives. We are absolutely dependent on God for everything. I could give you passage after passage. I'll just give you a few. I'd encourage you to write some of these down. Acts 17, 25. Paul, when preaching to Athens, he says that... He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And the moment he doesn't want us to have it, he takes it away. Or Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Numbered. Every fly and mosquito that died this year was all part of God's sovereign plan. And so is the rise and fall of every human being. Daniel says, or actually Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4 that as he learned the hard way that God does according to his will, according to the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? He does all things. He rises and he falls. And he bring he brings the, the rise of leaders into power, and he removes them, and everything in between. And the Psalmist says, "The Lord is in his heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth." Isaiah 46 says that he even does it to the point of bringing birds to one place or another, calling a prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. And the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, all our labor is in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, Psalm 127.1. It means... We can make all this planning of building and guarding and unless God wills it to stand protected or rise when you're building it, it's not happening. You can do all with all your might to raise your family and it's not happening apart from his grace and about his help. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul says, from him and through him, And to him are all things. All things are through him. And when he's done, they're done. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, including everything in our lives. Or as one Andy Wilson says in Death by Living, we are always in his hands but we often feel like we're in our own. We can't thank God for every breath or every heartbeat. We'd get tired of that. We have to do other things. But we can thank Him for every day we, for not splatting us with the moon or letting, the, letting us drop into the sun. He sustains the orbits of all things. We cannot see every moment of our stories, let alone any other mortal story. None of us, even have a firsthand knowledge of our own earthly years of existence, not all of them, what we think we know is all taken by faith, but God has seen, been there every second of our lives. He has crafted every step of our paths and every gesture and breath of every mortal you have ever passed. God is in control, and if the Lord wills, they will live and you will live. And if the Lord wills that we won't, we won't. And whatever we do, he is over all. Psalm 139, he says, all your days, they're in my hands. What humbling truths. This should cause us I wonder what this should cause us to say. One is it should cause us to think in terms of, I'm making plans, but God, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. And James is not saying here that if you don't say if the Lord wills or God willing or Lord willing, if you don't say that, your, your plans are cursed. Let's not think in terms of like this superstition. I got to say it or it's not going to happen. No, there are many times in the New Testament where there are plans being made and they didn't say that phrase. I think James is addressing a particular people and I think that same people could relate to us who live their lives time and time again making decisions without a dependency of God in our thoughts and our words. And we need to with our words and our actions reflect the truth that i am ignorant i am frail and i am dependent on god and i trust him and he is good the last point that i want you to see is the presumption the evil of presumption it's not it's not only folly it is evil look at verses 16 and 17 as it is you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. And James calls this presumption evil because it is a type of boasting. It is a type of thinking that I am in charge when in reality God is in charge. And we can do that time and time again. We live in a re- we are every moment of our lives meant to bow before him and and trust in him and Believe his promises and love him. And he loves us and he cares for us. And he's called us to that. And he says, This type of practical atheism, living as though God isn't the deciding factor, is a boast in your own arrogance and it is evil. And he says in verse 17, When we do not think and talk in a way that says, God willing, The Lord willing, we are sinning in the sin of omission. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We are to speak. You know now that you need to do it. You need to talk and think in a way that he is sovereign. This is absolutely important for those who are followers of Jesus. He has called us on a road of sacrifice, in loving sacrifice to others, of radical love to others, and to suffering when he calls us in dependence and trust in him. And it means that we embrace a God that we do not boast in our wisdom in our might or our strength, because we know that none of our wisdom, none of our might, none of our strength, none of our ability to make any plans is ultimately dependent on us. It is absolutely dependent on Him. So Jeremiah says, let the wise man boast, not in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in those things I delight, I delight declares the Lord. So, what lessons does this passage call us to? It calls us to a theme that James is now entering into as he brought us last week in the passage before. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He says, draw near to me, resist Satan and submit yourselves to it. Beware of a practical atheism, a faith that just thinks and talks one way just in limited times, but in all times, we need our faith needs to be brought out in our thinking and our living concerning our limitations and God's glorious sovereignty of our lives. And we need to humble ourselves under His mighty hands. You don't know your future, but God does. Your life is a vapor, but God cares for you. Your days are determined by God, submit to Him. And as I invite the worship team to come up, as we conclude with a song of whatever whatever our God ordains is right. And we're going to sing this in response. I, I want to address you one last time. If you're here and you're saying, I don't know if I am ready to embrace the rest of my frail life. If this is true, I don't know if I am secure or assured of any good future, and God's word says, you are an assured of a great future if you will turn away from your sins and accept the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. And when he forgives you because he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and if you will accept his gift and ask him to forgive you, he will give you eternal life that begins now. Oh, I pray that you will know that hope and that truth. If I can help you, please talk to me after. I would love to guide you and direct you and how you may have the assurance of this hope. Let us pray. Father, please help us to know and believe and confess and delight in the fact that we are dependent on you. Thank you that though we are frail, you are mighty. Thank you that though we are ignorant, you know all things and you care and you have shown yourself to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.